evening. The next lecture in this series will, as Friends of the Book Arts Press will all know, take place on Thursday the 6th of April, in which D.F. McKenzie, reader in bibliography at Oxford, will uh, be speaking on various aspects of the translation of manuscript into printed text. That's on Thursday, April 6th. That will be followed on Monday, April 10th, by David McKittrick, who is librarian of Trinity College, Cambridge, who will be speaking on the early history of the university press at Cambridge, whose authorized history he is in the midst of preparing. Thursday, April 6th, Monday, April 10th. Many of you here will have known John Cox, who is a 1983 graduate of the School of Library Service and who was, until his death in December, the head of technical services in the library of the Union Theological Seminary. John Cox taught rare book cataloging for us several summers and also participated in rare book schools 1985 and 1986. There will be a memorial service for John Cox at Union Theo at 120th and Broadway at 6 o'clock the day after tomorrow, Wednesday, February 1st. If you'll just go to the main entrance at 120th and Broadway, there'll be people to direct you to the chapel where the service will be held. And I'll, I'll post this outside the press room door for those who want to take the information uh, as well. Friends of the Book Arts Press will know that through the good, office, the good auspices of the Bodleian Library and especially of Michael Turner, head of conservation at the Bodleian, we've been given about 750 books which formerly belonged to a North Country family by the name of Sandgard, S-A-N space and then G-A-R-D-E. Through the kindness of Blacklose North America and of B.H. Blackwell Limited, the books were shipped at no expense to us by air from the basement of the Bodleian and arrived last Thursday. And it has been very difficult for me to pay much attention to anything else since then. The press room looks like a battle zone or it certainly looked like a battle zone at 3 o'clock this afternoon. It looks like a neat battle zone, I hope you'll agree now, because we have tried to at least put everything around the edges. The reception after this lecture will be in the press room, and you're very welcome to fondle anything that you see in piles, remembering, please, to put them back on whatever pile you found them in, because not everything is completely cataloged. I brought a couple of things to show you what has emerged from the first three boxes of the 21 that have arrived. A whole slew of pre-World War II penguins. This is penguin number 11, produced in 1935. It was the first of the second batch of penguins ever to be produced. Those of you who know about such things, which I didn't, will know that early penguins actually had dust jackets. Here is a mid-19th century cloth binding, quite typical, except that it has a yap edge something I've never seen before. And the collection was full of books like this one, A Naturalist Library, Mammals, Volume 7. 
your standard late 1830s English printing of no great consequence, except when you get it to the end and discover that there are about 50 hand-colored etchings of British mammals. Very handsome, too. These uh, are destined for the illustration packets, I'm sure. And finally, this book, which perhaps tells it all, the book itself is of no consequence. It's called Voyages of Drake, 1880s. But the inscription in the book is, this book was given to William Arthur Sutcliffe Sandgard by his loving father on his 10th birthday, 18 October, 1883. The two Sandgards in this, involved in this inscription, father and son, are the founders of the collection that more than 100 years later, through the kindness of Michael Turner and Oxford, is now here, a circumstance which I think would simply astonish the sand guards who lived and died outside of Manchester in England, but who were a family in the second generation of three elderly unmarried brothers and sisters, two sisters and a brother, who had decided that their books were to be given to a place where they would be useful. And after Bodley took everything that was useful to them and several other institutional collectors were allowed to do that, we were allowed our choice. And I hope you'll agree that uh, we're a place where they will be useful. Finally, by way of general announcements, I have to inform you that as part of the ever-increasing attempt at becoming as grandiose as possible, we have commissioned, for the first time, our own lion. It was done for us by the president of the Society of Wood Engravers, Simon Brett, and there are a number of copies of this in the press room, so you can take a look at it, as well as this, which is a copy of the original from the block itself, which I'll also put in the press room. Uh, we have to thank James Davis from the University of California at Los Angeles for having contributed the block. So thank you, James. And finally, this is a book which many of you know, published by... Uh, Braziller last year. It was the exhibition catalog for Time Sanctified, the show on the Book of Hours that attracted so much attention at the Walters Art Gallery uh, last year. Roger Wick, our speaker this evening, spoke on the subject of his exhibition at the Rare Books and Manuscripts section pre-conference of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association, at the end of June of this year in New Orleans. And his talk seemed so appealing and so relevant to this audience that I approached him on the spot and asked if he would give the talk again at Columbia, which he will now do. And it is a great pleasure to welcome him here. Roger Wick. Lights.
turn the lights on in the projectors. The lights are off in the back. at the Walters Art Gallery in the fall of 1985, my boss challenged me to mount an exhibition of illuminated manuscripts. From the previous exhibitions presented at the Walters by Dorothy Minor and her successor, Lillian Randall, I had a hard act to follow. The gallery has a prestigious history of groundbreaking exhibitions. One thinks of the 1949 exhibition of illuminated books in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, the 1953 show, which included very important early Christian and Byzantine books, the show called Early Christian and Byzantine Art, and the show that also included a great number of manuscripts, the 1962 exhibition called The International Style, and up to the 1983-84 exhibition of the Walters Manuscript Treasures entitled Masterpieces in Miniature. I set to work and conducted a quick survey of the holdings and discovered a thing that amazed me. The Walters ha was extremely rich in books of hours. In fact, it has nearly 300, almost as many as the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. And something that was as important as the large numbers of books of hours was the gallery's geographic breadth and chronological depth. The Walters has books of hours from the entire span of its popularity, that is, from the late 13th to the early 16th century. The gallery is also very rich in books of hours from all the major manuscript-producing centers of Western Europe, in Western Europe. It has numerous examples, of course, from France, but also it is very rich in examples from Flanders, Holland, as well as England, and representative examples exist from both Italy and Germany. In, in, order, in other words, the gallery had the rich resources, rich enough to do an exhibition on books of hours. The exhibition had one simple goal as its aim, to answer the question, what is a book of hours? A book of hours, simply put, is a prayer book. That is the simple answer to the question. But it is a prayer book with a rich variety of complex prayers, some standard, others optional, that were often accompanied by pictures, sometimes a small miniature, at other times a rich cycle of illustrations. In order to answer the question, what is a book of hours, I decided to display the manuscripts not chronologically nor geographically, but by text. The exhibition consisted of a series of galleries, each containing one of the text or prayers to appear in a book of hours. These rooms were arranged to reflect that sequence that these text or prayers normally occur within a typical book of hours. Walking through the exhibition would be akin to walking through a giant book of hours. Each room contained a wall panel explaining the nature of the prayer and the relationship between it and the accompanying illustration. But I employed a gimmick. While beginning to plan this exhibition, I paid a call in Washington at the offices of the National Endowment for the Humanities, the fund to which we were going to apply for money in order to do this exhibition. After offering my pitch, their reaction was, we like your idea, but you have one major problem. 
you are planning what we like to call a books in cases exhibition. We hate them, they told me. We groan when they come in the mail. Books in cases bore the living daylights out of the average museum visitor, and you will need some sort of interpretive installation, something to make people want to look at these books before we can justify giving you any public money. Now, one of the comments I always hear from every museum visitor who sees a medieval manuscript is, boy, it must have taken those monks and nuns an awful long time to produce those manuscripts. Or the converse, boy, those monks and nuns sure were lucky to use such pretty books. Now, there are two fallacies in these two comments. First, that books of ours were made for monks, nuns, priests. And second, that monks and nuns were the producers of books of ours. By the middle of the 13th century, the production of manuscripts, both their writing and their illumination, had moved out of the monastery and into the workshops of lay professionals. Books of ours were written and painted by lay, by lay scribes and artists who were paid sometimes handsomely for their efforts. And not only were books of ours made not for the religious orders, they were also not made by them. Sorry, not, not by them nor not for them. Books of ours were made for lay men and women. Rich, yes, for they could afford these expensive books, but also the growing middle class. Books of ours are the first genre of books that, for the first time since classical antiquity, were made for the lay audience. To emphasize this lay usage, I decided to build a late medieval house on the first floor of the Walters Art Gallery, a house in which to display the books of ours, for indeed these manuscripts were often used at home and not just at church for private prayer. The visitor would walk through the house, room by room, encountering the parts of a typical book of ours, prayer by prayer. The first part of any book of ours is its calendar. Like their contemporary counterparts, the medieval calendar told you what day it was, but it did this not by giving you, as today, its numerical sequence within the month, something that had no significance for the medieval user, but by telling you what feast day it was, such as Christmas or St. Valentine's Day or St. Patrick's Day. And indeed, at the mention of all of these, you, of course, can instantly think of December 25, February 14, or March 17. These three days are a living remnant of the medieval manner of telling time. I will also give you a brief synopsis of what else is contained in the calendar. If you can't hear me, let me know when I'm away from the microphone. <laughs> this is an early 14th century French calendar that consists of the list of the saints' feast days, black ones for the normal days, red ones for the more important ones, from which we derive our expression, red-letter days. Right about here, you can probably read La Nativitas Notre Seigneur. In other words, December 25, Christmas, December 26. We get the list of the important feast days. But calendars also contained a series of other rather mysterious-looking letters and numbers that often befuddle the 20th century viewers of these manuscripts. Three columns. First column, Roman numerals, very erratic, 8-16-5. But these are called the golden numbers, Golden, not because they were often written in gold, which isn't even the case here, they're written in red. Golden, but because by using them in conjunction with the next sequence, 
letters from A through G, the dominical letters, told you what day of the week was Sunday. Every year had a designated dominical letter so that, let's say, B, all Bs throughout the year were going to be Sundays. When you combine various complicated formula of the golden number and the dominical letter, you arrived at the date for Easter, the most important day of the Christian year, a movable feast that was depending on astrology and astronomy, and it had to be fixed for the sequence of the other movable feasts. This column here, the third column, which appears in earlier books of ours, begins to fizzle out by the mid-15th century and by the late-15th century it disappears. Again, another strange sequence of numbers. This is the Roman calendar, which the ancient Romans used and which continued up until use very actively into the late Middle Ages. It consisted of three fixed dates without, within each month. Hale, or Calends, which is the first. And we get the Gnomes, which was sometimes on the ninth, but not always, sometimes on the seventh. Then we get here, I can't even find it, Ides. Um, and what the Romans did is you counted backwards from certain various feasts for certain various various days in order to arrive at a feast. In other words, the gnomes was the seventh, but the sixth of the month was not the sixth, but it was the first before the gnomes. These were contained also in the Roman calendars. Now, calendars are also contained illustrations, and these are what interested me the most after I got beyond the text and explaining what the function of the calendar in a book of hours was, I then explained what these small pictures were. This early 14th century has little vignettes at the bottom. Now these little pictures, which appear in about every other book of hours, are called the labors or the leisures of the month, a typical agrarian peasant labor that was uh, typical for each of the month. This is the month of December, and you have two women over here on the right-hand side kneading dough in a big trough, the left side, this woman is assisted by this man in stuffing the loaves of bread into a large oven. Sometimes the pictures, though, were not at the bottom. They were on the side, such as this illustration in a French manuscript of about 1430. The picture, by the way, is about as big as a 25-cent stamp and is often the left-hand side of the manuscript. It shows the man reaping, which was typical for July. Other manuscripts... The style will change. These are little vignettes which appear in a French manuscript of about 1460, small vignettes on the right-hand bottom corner of the manuscript. This is the scene for May, which is going out hawking. You see this nicely dressed man and his nicely dressed girlfriend on a horse with their falcon in their hand. One of my favorite manuscripts from the Walters was this one, an early 16th century French manuscript that had very elaborate borders that went on two sides and expanded the occupation of the month into a kind of very elaborate landscape. But before I go into that, I want to tell you how I, illust how I displayed these manuscripts in the Walters in the exhibition. Before you got to the medieval house, you got to the garden of the medieval house. And on the right, on the left-hand side, you see the designer's sketch can't see it very well, but what you see are cases behind which are planted trees, and on the sort of newel posts of the garden wall, we were going to display the manuscripts. Those very dark pictures are color photomural blow-ups we decided to paste on the wall in order to sort of expand a rather narrow exhibition gallery that we were using. 
That's the sketch, and this is the way it looked in reality. We built the little sort of stucco garden wall and placed the manuscripts on the corners as if they were sort of casually left by their more recent viewers. You can see the color mural blow-ups, which are from a 16th century French manuscript we have, very Renaissance in feel. The trees were real. The garden wall could be sat on, but no one sat on it. I had actually four of these cases in the exhibition and had them grouped by the, chronologically speaking, by the months. So there was a season, therefore, for each of the, the four seasons of the year, three manuscripts per each, um, per each case in chronological order. This is one of the cases, the way the manuscripts look in the cases. I'll go through the manuscript here on my right, again, because it, I want to illustrate the kinds of typical cycles that you would get in very lushly illustrated manuscripts that would have, when they were nicely illustrated, up to 12, 12 illustrations, one for each month. This is for the month of March, which was a cold month, and you sent your peasants out into the fields to prune or plant the vineyards. In the month of April, it's a leisurely month for you, if you were wealthy and owned books of ours. You and your lady love went out into the April meadows and picked flowers and wove them into uh, nice little gardens that you would place on each other's heads. The month of July was hot. Uh, if you were well-to-do, you didn't go outside. You stayed in the cool castle, but you sent your peasants out to do the reaping of the wheat. And in the month of August, the wheat that was uh, reaped in July was then stored into barns. For the month of November, a fall month, the peasants would go out into the woods. Peasant here with a big stick in his hand. And what he does is he goes into the woods and beats the, um, the oak trees. And he does that because if you see these little green things that look like bugs on the bottom, those are the acorns which fall off of the trees because he's beaten them, and then the pigs go and eat them up. After they're fattened, of course, then the pigs are slaughtered in December the next month, and you see the woman catching the precious blood in a pan, in a saucepan, because that won't be wasted. And then the two well-dressed men uh, standing off to the left are those, of course, that uh, own the pig and are going to eat the pork. This is a detail from the manuscript from which we took the photo mural blow-ups. As I said before, it's a French manuscript of the early 16th century. These illustrations are about the size, let's say, of two 25-cent stamps. Very small, but extremely well painted by a very gifted Renaissance painter uh, working for the kings and queens of uh, Renaissance France. He was capable of incorporating wonderful sense of depth into his manuscripts. And this is a detail of one of the miniatures that I think with its cool tones and the, uh, the ability of his to capture distance um, is similar to uh, the kinds of paintings that you encounter uh, techniques in the paintings of Bruegel. Now, on the left-hand side, you see the garden, but you're looking at the house that I was telling you about that we built. Now, it sounds a little strange to encounter a house as you're walking into an exhibition, but I should warn you that if you actually went to the exhibition, before you got to this point, on the left-hand side, there was a small auditorium in which we were playing a 10-minute audiovisual presentation that presented the book of ours in its sort of social economic background, and slides from the French city of Rouen, which, in which there are a lot of extant 16th century architecture still around, were incorporated into this audiovisual. 
visual so that the viewer who took the time to go to that presentation walked out and then encountered a sort of modern recreation of the house, he would then understand, aha, this is one of those kinds of houses where they prayed books of hours. So I warn you, you're seeing it a little, a little fresh. You entered into the right-hand side in which there was a door, and entered the first room of the house, which really was purposely made very plain. And when you entered that room, you entered into really the major, first major text of the Book of Hours itself, which are the four gospel lessons. Four excerpts from the four evangelists are put usually at the beginning of a Book of Hours to form a kind of synopsis, a history of mankind's salvation as seen through the life and death of Christ here on earth. Each of these four excerpts from the Gospels is usually illustrated by an evangelist portrait. John's is usually first, and that's the illustration here on the right. He is usually shown writing not in a scriptorium or a studio, but in, uh, on the island of Patmos, to which he had, been, he had been banished because of his preaching of the Christian faith. Now, the evangelist symbols are usually, the evangelists are usually accompanied by their symbols. In the case of John, that's an eagle, and you see the eagle there sort of holding the scroll in his beak, generally assisting John. Now, what you can't see, but if you look very close, you can begin to see this dark shape here, right above these little flowers, this little dark shape is a little devil, and this appears in a lot of books of ours for the portrait of John. And what it is is a little devil who climbs onto the island of Patmos who tries everything he can do to prevent John from writing his gospel. And what he often does is steal the pen case, or in this case, he's pouring out John's ink. The other three evangelists were usually illustrated by these kinds of portraits that showed them in a kind of house or scriptorium or study uh, writing their gospels. Again, their evangelist symbols were usually accompany them. Here is the case for Mark, where Mark's lion is shown holding the gospel as then Mark then actually takes down the words. Now, it might look a little funny to our eyes, humorous, that here is this animal kind of pet-like holding this book, but actually it's rather symbolic because, of course, the gospels are the word of God, and indeed the evangelist doesn't so much write it as take it down in kind of dictation form. The feeling is that the evangelist symbols have come down from God on high with God's word in their hand that they then proffer to the evangelists who take it down word for word. This is one of the cases in this room, and I show you this because what I did in each case was to have two books. The one on the left was usually the standard iconography, as I call it. You can't see it very well, but there is a portrait of Matthew. But what I would also do, and I did this on purpose, was to juxtapose the sort of standard iconography with the less the less standard, the atypical, or the slightly offbeat. And that's why there's a second manuscript here. On the right-hand side, you see an illustration of a man painting, and that is Luke. And this is the what I call the offbeat iconography for Luke. Luke is often shown writing his gospel, but Luke, according to tradition, was not only an evangelist, but he was also a portrait painter as well as a physician. So sometimes in books of ours, you get illustrations of Luke painting the Virgin, which ended up becoming a very popular motif for northern painters. You might call to mind uh, paintings by Roger van der Weyden in which he incorporates a portrait of himself, as other artists were later to do, in the guise of Luke painting the Virgin.
when you left this small sort of foyer and a sort of ante room, you came then to the second room of the house, which was the main room of the house, because usually the second text you encounter in a kind of typical book of hours is the series of prayers called The Hours of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In other words, the very text after which the book of hours receives its name. The Hours of the Virgin are a series of prayers, mostly composed of psalms as well as canticles and hymns and some readings, that were divided into the eight canonical hours of the day. And ideally, if you are a really good Christian with not a lot else to do, you prayed the Hours of the Virgin spread over the entire day, which of course didn't always happen. Seven times of the day you, you added up matins and lauds at the beginning. I show you the painting on the left, which is the Marode altarpiece by Robert Campan at the Cloisters just up the street a couple of blocks, because it was one of the inspirations for the kinds of decoration we decided to include in our room for the Hours of the Virgin. You see the Virgin seated on the floor, but she's leaning against a bench behind which is a fireplace, and in front of her is a table on which there are some prayer books. Probably one is a book of hours. On the right, you see the first manuscript that I put in the case, and it shows, again, a kind of one of the miniatures that inspired us because it shows the Virgin praying, really not in a kind of Old Testament-type structure, but in a kind of typical 15th-century um, Flemish house. She's presented, really, as a sort of uh, you know, a housefrau from Flanders. On the left-hand side is, again, one of these kinds of miniatures that also offered to me and my designer a kind of inspiration for what we were going to make the room of the Hours of the Virgin look like. And again, it has a man seated on a bench in front of a fireplace, in front of which of him is a table set, of course, in this case with his dinner. This is the room itself in which we had to put a very large case in the center of the room. That's our dining room table, though it looks a little like a coffin with a glass top. And that's where we put eight on one side, eight on the other, 16 books of hours uh, displayed in their, canonical, uh, in their canonical sequence. But if you squint a little at the slide, you can see. Here was our bench that we built in 15th century style, and we put it in front of our fireplace in 15th century style. And we also incorporated into the room this wainscoting, which actually looks very expensive and was very well done, but it's something made with cheap, thin wood here you can see a little bit better the fireplace and the bench in front and a little bit of the wainscoting there's also a 15th century French room completely preserved in the Philadelphia Museum of Art on which we also based for archaeological exactness this double tiered linen fold motif which we didn't you know, make up completely out of our heads I'm going to show you a sequence from a single book of ours so you can see how rich these manuscripts really could be. This is a French manuscript of the first decade of the 15th century from the workshop of the Boussico master, one of the best French, one of the best Parisian artists working at the international style and the early 15th century. The Hour of Matins, the first prayer, had its typical illustration of the Annunciation. Lauds, the traditional illustration, was the, visita was the visitation. In other words, what I'm beginning to describe to you, Prime had an illustration of the nativity. 
the traditional illustration for the hours of the Virgin was what is called an infancy cycle. In other words, a cycle that described and illustrated the infancy of Christ. Terrace had an illustration of the Annunciation to the Shepherds. Sext, an illustration of the Adoration of the Magi. Non, a presentation in the temple. Vespers, traditionally a flight into Egypt. And Compline, we sort of jump ahead in time, Mary's reward for all her efforts, a coronation of the Virgin. Now, these were the manuscripts that I had in the center of the room in a 15th century sequence from France and Flanders. Over on the left side of the room, I had another sequence, also the infancy of, of Christ, but smaller books that usually they were smaller from the late 13th and 14th century. So walking into the room, you could see an entire sequence of eight different manuscripts from the 13th and 14th century, and in the center of the room, a sequence of manuscripts from the 15th century. Now, all books weren't alike. Some of them had a single miniature, but I want to show you just one illustration from a very stunning Walters manuscript. Um, it's about 1420s, 1430, by an artist called the Master of the Munich Golden Legend. And he liked to incorporate these little vignettes, ancillary scenes which fleshed out the main miniature. I'll just give you one example. For the flight into Egypt, he had small vignettes that told you the rest of the story. In other words, the flight takes place in the center. The top vignette would illustrate Herod commanding the massacre of the innocents, which of course is the reason the Holy Family had to flee in the first place. A soldier questioning a farmer, asking them if he had recently seen the Holy Family pass by. And finally, a, the actual massacre of the innocents taking place in the lowermost vignette. And as I said before, these all surround and fill out the main scene of the flight into Egypt itself. Now, there was a second tradition in Books of Hours. In other words, you could have the infancy cycle, or you could have what is called the passion cycle, which is the passion of Christ, which is, of course, the end of Christ's life. Now, it usually begins with an agony in the garden, and that's what you see in the large miniature on the top. You see Christ kneeling, praying towards the chalice, which is being presented to him by God, and the sleeping, negligent apostles. Below, you have the traditional cycle. So in other words, in this book, you've got two for one. You've got the passion cycle above and the infancy cycle below, however, reduced to the encapsulation in what are these, these are called historiated initials. Other manuscripts would completely get rid of the infancy cycle and just concentrate literally, figuratively, on the passion cycle. And this is a manuscript that I was very taken with and borrowed from Harvard University from the Houghton Library. It's an English book of hours from the 15th century, and English books of hours are generally a little bit rare because they mostly, they weren't very good at it, and they mostly imported their art from France or Flanders. But this one was made in England. And this English artist had a lot of gusto, as you can see. One of the bloody flagellations I've ever seen in a manuscript. This guy below, one of the tormentors, is on his back pulling a rope in order to more tightly bind Christ's feet to the pillar. This fellow here, he's putting his cat of nine tails in his mouth because he's rolling down his pose that will give, give him greater agility. At the same time, it will uh, insultingly expose his buttocks to the Savior. The blood is coming in such torrents that it runs down Christ's chest and legs and runs down the little rivulets onto the floor. 
that was the Hours of the Virgin. Now, when you turned a corner, you entered a long series of galleries that were not really fixed up very fancily at all, rather generic, calm galleries, because you don't want to overdose your visitor. And what I did then was put the other kinds of prayers that then would usually occur in a typical book of hours. After you prayed your hours of the Virgin, ideally you would have the time and energy to pray a similar kind of group of prayers, again from Matins to Compline, called the Hours of the Cross. And these were usually illustrated by a single miniature of the crucifixion. And I go back to the Busico Master manuscript that I showed you before. However, because I wanted to be didactic in the exhibition, I also showed the more unusual scenes. And in this manuscript, a very, very beautiful one from Avignon of about 1400, produced when the popes were in southern France during the so-called Babylonian captivity. And this was produced by a French artist under heavy Italian influence, or indeed possibly by an Italian artist himself. We had a whole sequence of pictures in this book, not just one that illustrated the sequence of the Passion of Christ. This is one of the more stunning ones from the sequence, which shows the entombment. Christ's rather gray-green body is being put in the tomb. Very poignantly, his right, his left arm is being taken up by Mary, here Mary in the blue, who very, very tenderly and sweetly is giving her son a final kiss before burial. This is Mary Magdalene, somewhat hysterically, uh, wringing her hands above her head. After the hours of the cross, the next section, the next prayer, the same, that you would come to are the hours of the Holy Spirit. And as you can imagine, the traditional subject for the single miniature illustrating this series of prayers was a Pentecost. And I return to our Busico manuscript here. However, I also like to show the offbeat iconography. And here, from the Flemish manuscript of about 1460, again, had a whole sequence of very unusual miniatures because, really, the Holy Spirit doesn't make a lot of appearances in the Bible. So they had to come up with some rather unusual times in which he manifested himself. In this case, you have the dove floating over this sort of empty-looking landscape. And what this illustrates is the moment in time after the creation, and we see God, the Father above, and his attendant musical angels, has sent forth his spirit, in other words, the spirit of the Holy Spirit, to float over the surface of the newly created earth. And that's the illustration that was picked up here. The next little gallery contained books open to two prayers that are almost ubiquitous in books of ours. They go by their clumsy Latin incipits. They're called the obsecro te, which means I beseech you, or the o intimorata, which means o incomparable one. And they're both addressed to the Virgin. They're both very beautiful prayers. And if you compare them with the hours of the Virgin or other hours, the latter are usually composed of psalms and readings and are actually rather stiff and formal. But the obsecrote and the o intimorata are written in the first person singular. They also have a very poetic and plaintive tone. So they're very different in nature. And that, I think, also accounts for their popularity. They were usually illustrated by an image of the Madonna, of the Virgin and Child, sometimes, as here, with, an, with a portrait of the person who commissioned the manuscript stuck into the manuscript. 
this particular manuscript was quite wonderful to include because it was not just a decoration, but in a way an actual illustration of what is actually going on in the prayer itself. In the prayer, the person praying the prayer does not address Christ or God directly. The late Middle Ages piety is mostly characterized by a kind of deviousness. In other words, God was viewed as just and mighty, and he wasn't going to let you into heaven. So you prayed to saints, primarily the virgin, and in her softness, she would then turn to her son and plead your case and ask her son not to be so just, but to be a little merciful and let her client into heaven. And that's exactly what's going here. You see the man on his knees, but follow his eyes. He's not looking at the Christ child, but he's looking at the virgin. Now the virgin looks down towards her son, and look what she's doing. She's caressing his thigh, but she's also sort of offering him a bribe, a piece of fruit. And look at the result. The Christ child turns directly towards the man, pleased, and offers his benediction, his blessing of forgiveness to the man. So there's this wonderful circular motif in the prayer, which also appears in this illustration. Other pictures get a little different. Here we have the virgin who has sort of literally the whole world, not in her hands, but under her cloak. And she has on her right side, our left, the entire ecclesiastical world who was appealing, uh, appealing to her for aid. And you see the first person right first in line is the pope. Behind him is a cardinal, and behind him is a, um, a bishop. On the right-hand side, which was the virgin's left, the less good side, is the lay world. First in line there is the French king. Of course, this is a French manuscript, so he's in first line. Now, below, we have this scene. The people who actually own this book, this Mr. and Mrs. right here, wanted to avoid the crush upstairs, so they had themselves painted below in the little border vignette for a kind of private audience with the Virgin. What's also very interesting to learn is that by date, one can know that the manuscript, by style, one can date this manuscript to its creation of about 1480. The clothing which this man and wife wear, however, date to the early 16th century. And what they did, and which happened a lot at the times, is that they scratched out the portraits of the original owners and had themselves painted in on top of them. The illustration on the left-hand side I show you, this was from the, the obsecrote section, and it shows a manuscript, a very rare one, and it belongs to the Walters, in what is called its Lapin binding. You see all that red velvet. Many, many books of ours in the late 15th and early 16th century were bound in this manner with a soft velvet wrapping that really sort of unfolded all around it and protected it. But as you can imagine, these things rotted, the cloth rotted. This is a very rare surviving examples, example. Now, I included another section in the, in the uh, Time Sanctified exhibition that wasn't a text per se, and so I was really kind of cheating. And that was a section devoted to what I called patronage. In other words, in books of ours, being commissioned by laymen and women as a vehicle not only for piety, but sort of self-aggrandizement and showing off, because indeed these books were status symbols, they often had marks of ownership painted inside them, portraits, coats of arms, mottos, things like that. And so in this case, I included lots of these manuscripts showing the variety, the different kinds of marks of ownerships that would appear in books of ours. This is a 
very rare English manuscript of about 1340 that has this very unusual portrait, not just of the man, Mr. Butler, we happen to know the family who, paid, uh, who was the patron of this book. Mr. Butler is kneeling here in orange. Behind him in the pale purple is his wife. Behind her, dressed in pink, is their daughter, barely peeping out from the frame. This is the priest, and they're shown at mass during the elevation. This man is the acolyte. Very unusual because of the psychological penetration that is included in this very early portrait. This is one of my favorite manuscripts in the exhibition, and it was painted for a woman of the Bouve, B-U-V-E-S family of Picardy of northern France and southern Flanders. And the woman here did a very audacious thing. You see what is actually going on is the Annunciation, and this is the illustration for Matins of the Hours of the Virgin. We have the Virgin on the right, and on the left we have the Angel Gabriel. Here's a detail of the left illustration. But what is happening, what really is happening, is you see the angel Gabriel holds up a banderol which says, Ave Maria, etc., Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed is the Lord. In other words, this is the very moment of the incarnation, an extremely important moment in Christian theology. But what he's doing with the other hand is pushing forward his client and says, and by the way, I'd like to introduce you to sort of Miss Boove here. And it's really what's going on, because it's, and it's really very audacious and doesn't happen very often in manuscripts. And this, this woman had a lot of chutzpah. This is a manuscript from Flanders of about 1480, and we know from Coats of Arms who the owner was, because he loaded his book of hours with marks of his own ownership. Here's his monogram, repeated here and here and here and woven into the tapestry behind him. His coats of arms are on the banner, on his tabard, down here on the shield. And we also get his motto, which is then repeated, including uh, the motto is, uh, includes, again, the monogram. And here's a detail of the coat of arms. Here, by the way, is that very kind of book of hours. You see it's a little blurry, but you see the Book of Hours, the kind of rectangular shape. That's the text block. Here's the green cloth on his prie dieu. But this pink surround is the equivalent of this maroon velvet here. So that's an actual illustration of one of these kinds of bindings. Also in the patronage section was this manuscript that I borrowed from the Beinecke Library of Yale University. Again, one of my favorites that I couldn't pass up. It has a very interesting story behind it, and one that I'll tell you quickly, because it illustrates the kind of paths of ownership that can affect the actual constitution of the Book of Hours itself, as well as influencing other owners. It was made for this woman, Blanche of Burgundy. She was the granddaughter of St. Louis. She was an extremely proud woman. She commissioned one of the most extravagant books of hours ever. She died. It went through a few hands, but went into this guy's pocket. That's King Charles V of France, who got it in the 1370s. He was a big bibliophile, and he commissioned a lot of manuscripts himself. He was very taken with this book. He added another 60 pages and another 30 illustrations. These are by the artists that he hired. And he also loaded up his illustrations with pictures of himself, portraits of himself. 
Now, around this time in the 1370s, we have the Duc de Berry of the Trévisure fame, probably the most important and well-known commissioner of medieval manuscripts. He was dying to own this book, absolutely dying. And we know that because when he saw it, I've now been able to establish that it began his own career of commissioning manuscripts. And he commissioned the Petit Sir, which is still in existence and in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, in imitation, direct imitation, of this very manuscript, of the manuscript that combined Blanche's part as well as his brother's part, Charles V's part. That book never got finished. He commissioned another book of ours, also in imitation, the Trebelzer. In other words, this book of ours was very influential on the most influential collectors of manuscripts. He later actually owned it, by which time he must have lost his taste for it because he gave it away, and it never appears in his inventories, although his signature was in it. In the 18th century, it was donated to the National Library in Turin, where in 1904, it completely burned up in the very famous fire there. Only about a generation later, in the 40s, 26 leaves of it were discovered in a provincial library, the Cathedral Chapter Library of Portsmouth in England, from which it was then immediately, almost after its discovery, stolen. They found it, however, the thief threw it away because it had no value to him, lying out in the yard of the presbytery, sort of flopping in the breezes. It was then deaccessioned, and it was sold at Christie's in 1967, and was bought by H.P. Krauss, the century's most famous book dealer. And from there, it was, went to the hands of Edwin Beinecke of the Beinecke Library, and it now resides in the Beinecke Library, where we hope it will remain. When I tell this story, the curator there, who will go nameless, insists that I tell you that when he brought it down to the Walters Art Gallery, this is part of its provenance, he had it wrapped up in his underwear. <laughs> this is one of the other manuscripts that was included in the patronage section, a late 13th, 13th century manuscript, one of the earliest ones in the Walters Art Gallery. And I show it to you because very early on, and actually from the first inception of Books of Hours, owners were putting their portraits in their Books of Hours. This woman, however, was very humble. No coats of arms, no name, no mark, other marks of ownership except for these rather generic portraits. In the exhibition, I contrasted this one with this Book of Hours, one of the latest in the exhibition and one of the strangest. What, it, what you're looking at is a sort of torn curtain. You see a black curtain on which are written gold letters that form some sort of mysterious code which has not yet been figured out. The curtain has tears, and the inside lining of the curtain is exposed, and those are the red and white stripes. The combination of the red and white stripes, the black cloth, the gold letters, and the blue background form the heraldic colors of a man named Jean Lallemont le Jeune of the French city of Bourges, who is a very strange man. His Hours of the Virgin is filled with nothing but images like this. The torn curtain reveals a kind of blob. That blob is a hair shirt, which was one of his personal emblems. On top of the hair shirt, floating, you see a little puff of cloud, and on that puff of cloud, what looks like a fly. It's not a fly. That's the Madonna. And what we have here is the illustration for matins of the Hours of the Virgin, where we would normally expect a Madonna or an Annunciation. But what we get is the smallest Madonna possible. And in other words, Jean Lallemand filled his book 
with em emblems of himself, with his heraldic colors, and used it just as a vehicle for bragging. In other words, you can't get a bigger contrast between the medieval humility of this 13th century woman and this 16th century Renaissance man. We go back to the normal book of hours and stay away from the theme of patronage into the next text that almost is always in a book of hours, and these were the penitential psalms, the seven penitential psalms, which were traditionally written by King David, and therefore they usually have a portrait of David, as we have here on the right, kneeling in penance in a large landscape, which is supposed to sort of summarize the entire sins of the world. He becomes our model penitent. Other manuscripts, such as this 15th century Italian one by Zenobi Strozzi, illustrates other episodes from David's life. His beginning, in other words, the beginning of his career is illustrated here when, as a youth, he slayed the giant Goliath. That's actually pretty unusual, though. Later books of ours pick up the more common thread, which is the actual cause of David's downfall and sin. And so that's what you get in this Flemish book of ours. Bathsheba, who's at her bath, very ginger, gingerly exposing her lower legs. But this so much excites David up here that he nearly is sort of leaning out of his tower. Of course, he calls for Bathsheba and immediately uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba. So he's got one sin. And in order to get rid of Bathsheba's husband, who's in the way, he affects his murder. So he compounds adultery with murder at which point God gets on David's case and he then has to write the penitential psalms. The next section included the sort of oddball prayers, accessory texts, as I call them. In other words, depending on the combination of your piety or your pocketbook or both, you could ask for scribes to include favorite additional prayers and ask the miniaturist to illustrate them. And there are hundreds of different prayers of these kind of so-called optional prayers. Some illustrated, some not. One of my favorites is a series of prayers, the hours of the weekday. In other words, a series of seven different prayers that you said for each day of the week each on a traditional theme, Sunday for the Trinity, Monday for the, for the dead. Thursday was the theme, since that's the day traditionally of the Last Supper, for the hours of the Blessed Sacrament. And here we see men and women gathering in a church, kneeling before the Eucharist exposed in a monstrance. What I really also like about this illustration is it shows a window on contemporary usage, not only of the costumes of the people, but you see they actually hold their books of hours in their hands. Other optional prayers included those that you sometimes said during the Mass because you not only used your books of hours at home but also in church. And there were prayers that you said at specific times of the Mass or to the Eucharist. One of my favorite illustrations is this very rare one in a Walters manuscript that shows a portrait of the miraculous bleeding host of Dijon. In 1433, Pope Eugene IV gave to Duke Philip the Good of Burgundy this very relic, a miraculous bleeding host, that he then had installed at the Chartreuse de Champmore, his family mausoleum, in the city of Dijon. A few years later, in 1454, his wife, Isabel of Portugal, in order to protect the relic, had it encased in this silver gilt reliquary with angels. 
What's fascinating, and you can understand the cult behind such an object, is that many medieval hosts were stamped with various images, and the image of Christ as judge, Christ as the judge of the last judgment, was a, a common stamp on the medieval wafer. And what happened was that the droplets of blood began to form on this host in a kind of passion-like manner. By that I mean around the perimeter of the host we get a circle and small droplets that might evoke to your eye a kind of crown of thorns uh, image and of course the other droplets of blood then uh, also forming on the areas of Christ's wounds. Unfortunately both host and monstrance were destroyed in the French Revolution. The next room of the house that was really very elaborately done up was that for the suffrages, and that's what you see on the left. And it incorporated a private altar with a sort of carved front on which was set a Flemish altarpiece of the late 15th century with a crucifix carved in the center panel with wings. You also see two pieces of stained glass um, on uh, on either flanking on either side of the wall. Now what's very wonderful about this painting barely see it, but look closely. It has an image of the uh, entombment in, this, in sculpture in the center, but what it has on the wings are a man and a wife kneeling at a prie-dieu, and on their prie-dieu are their books of hours. So it shows you the function, the contemporaneous usage of the books of hours. But it also illustrates the function, as I mentioned before, of the saintly intercessors, because behind the man and the wife are their patron saints, John Yes, John the Baptist and Mary Magdalene on the right. And it shows that the man and wife are praying to, most probably, their suffrages. And so those are the prayers that are included in this room. Suffrages are prayers to saints, and you could have normally about 12 or so in your book of hours, or you could have hundreds, or you could have none. On the right is one of my favorites, and it shows a suffrage illustration to a French book of hours, um, three scenes from the life of Mary Magdalene. On the bottom scene, Mary Magdalene cries on Christ's feet, washes his feet, and dries them with her hair. Then after the crucifixion, according to tradition, Mary Magdalene sort of goes off to the south of France for a while. And she becomes a hermit in this rather pleasant climate. And in reward for her meditation, she is elevated seven times a day by the celestial choirs in order to hear the singing of the angels. She's then transported to the local church with her friend, Maxentius, who is the bishop there. She receives her last communion and dies at this enviable moment. You see her receiving the last communion, and the little white angel is taking the even littler soul of Mary Magdalene up to heaven. What I didn't explain is that I wanted to imitate the kind of triadieu that the man and wife in the painting are kneeling at to pray their books of hours. So in the center of the room, it looks a little bit like a picnic table, but what it was was our prie-dieu. And we had kneelers on which, in order to really look at the manuscript, you had to physically kneel down to look at these books of hours, which are exhibited on what looks like pillows. And indeed, in lots of paintings of the period, you see that very often they are shown on these luxuriously cloth-covered tops of the prie-dieu, or actually on very nicely stuffed pillows. So we wanted to capture that effect. 
My last saint in the room, I had many more, but one of my favorites is St. Wilgefortis. And she was an early Christian martyr who was betrothed to a pagan. She had dedicated her life and her virginity to God, and she was very upset with her father having betrothed her to someone she did not want to get married to. So she prayed to God and asked him to disfigure her. He rewarded her prayers by having her grow mustaches and a beard, and she became the patron saint of bearded ladies. Now, it's very interesting, the origin of this saint, because what happens is that in the early Christian period, there were images of Christ on the cross in a long robe. But later on, hundreds of years later, they didn't get it anymore, and the crucifixions were all of a nude or semi-nude Christ. So here were medieval pilgrims encountering what looked like a bearded lady on the cross, and so the whole legend of St. Wilgefortis, which really means nothing but strong virgin, was then manufactured retroactively to account for these images. You then turned a corner in the exhibition and everything changed, both in atmosphere and in mood. And that's because you entered into the room in which I had exposed manuscripts open to what is called the Office of the Dead, which appeared in all books of ours. The Office of the Dead was a series of prayers that you recited at funerals or any time for the benefit of your departed loved ones and also for your own future salvation. Now, going back to my theory of trying to conjure up the kinds of spaces in which books of ours were going to be prayed, I decided I wanted to conjure up a graveyard, a medieval graveyard. And so the first thing you saw in the exhibition, as you see on the slide of your left, is this painting blown up in black and white of a medieval graveyard, and below that, an actual real-sized coffin, which I hoped would really shock the visitor and would completely change his mood. This is a detail from that painting which shows one of the sections on which I based what you're about to see. Medieval graveyards were actually rather small relatively. And in Paris, the Cemetery of the Innocents was a graveyard that uh, accommodated 1,000 years of medieval Parisian dead. Now you wonder how can 1,000 years of medieval Parisian dead fit in that relatively small space of a couple city blocks. It's because you didn't stay in the ground very long. You only stayed in the ground for about a dozen years, and graveyards in the Middle Ages were dug and redug constantly, and the bones of the previous occupants of the holes were encountered, and they were taken out, and they were stored in what are called charnel houses, which were open-air storage bins above the cloisters surrounding many of the medieval graveyards. And that's what you see here. Down here, the graveyard. Here are the arches of the cloisters surrounding the graveyard. And here is the open storage area in which you see the skulls and bones. The artist has conveniently removed part of the roof so you can see how they're nicely stacked up inside. But you can see it's filled with bones. The 18th century didn't like it, and they tore it down and got rid of all the bones. Um, when I expressed this idea to the designer that I was using, and I told him I wanted a coffin, he thought I wanted to display manuscripts in the coffin. So he had these books sort of sitting in a glass-covered coffin. But I told him that was no good because people weren't buried with their books of ours, so we nixed that idea. 
This is the room as you entered it, and I explained the Charno House idea, and that's the very idea I wanted to recreate. I really wanted to recreate a corner of the Cemetery of the Innocents in Baltimore. On the right, you see the painting, which helped create the space in a trompe-l'oeil effect of the corner. On the ground was the coffin, and towards the left, you see these arches, which begin to imitate the cloister you saw in the painting. Above the arches, you see a half-timbered open storage area with silkscreen skulls above. Here's a detail of the corner. And a kind of side effect, which was very eerie but very pleasant, is we lined the cases with black suede and uh, little metal armatures stuck out from the backs of the cases to hold up the manuscripts. But the cradles for the books in black suede completely absorbed all the light with the result that from a distance the manuscripts seemed to sort of float, held by unseen ghostly hands. I liked that effect a lot. Anyway, the manuscripts were opened. This was an area in which I actually had a great deal of fun in the research because what I discovered was that when you get a lot of books of hours together and begin to collect the pictures, you discover that collectively you can paint a whole portrait of medieval, late medieval, death and dying and funerary practices. So I decided to arrange the manuscripts in the chronological sequence that would then describe the process of dying and death and the thereafter in the late Middle ages. So I had in the first case personifications of death, but in the second case I then had the deathbed. And that's the illustration you see on the right, where the man is dying in bed, grieving over him are his son and another helper, unseen by them, but very much seen by the man or affected by the man, um, is the death who has walked into the right. And all he has to do is touch the bed and the man dies instantaneously. I should have shown this one before because this man isn't dead yet. This is a very unusual scene, again, in the case called the deathbed, where the man is receiving the last rites. You see him in bed with the priest giving him his final communion. His friends below are very upset and crying, but notice him. He's got a smile on his face. That's because he is dying the perfect, enviable Christian death. He is going to have his sins forgiven, receive communion, and he knows the instant he dies, he will go straight to heaven. Another illustration, which is a small vignette, which is why it looks a little scruffy, which shows another deathbed scene where a monk holds a lighted candle. But... Above, we got that naked soul again. It's popped out of the man's mouth, but it's being fought over by an angel and a black devil. After you died, your body had to be washed and cleaned. This was women's work, and the women then sewed it into a shroud. The men returned and put the shroud-encased corpse into a very rough coffin, very much like the coffin in the center of the room. You were then carried, usually in the evening, to the church. And in the church, you then paid for monks to recite the very prayer that you had in your Book of Hours, the office of the dead, over your body. The next morning was usually the time for the funeral mass. And that's what you see illustrated here. The blue-covered coffin is in the center of the choir, and on the left is the priest saying the mass, the requiem, with the black mourners below and above and the monks who are waiting for the end of the service. 
In this particular manuscript, the illustration I just showed you is on the left-hand side of the book. On the right-hand side, in this historiated initial, is an illustration of the effect and the reason why you prayed the office of the dead or paid for masses to be said. These three female souls are burning not in hell but in purgatory, and you recited the office of the dead in order to lessen the amount of time they would suffer before being worthy of going to heaven. After the Requiem Mass, a formal procession took your body, still in its coffin, with torchbearers preceding it, to the graveyard. This manuscript is interesting because the borders around also have a kind of lugubrious sepulchral theme. What I like also about this manuscript is the gravedigger, like Quasimoto, is a hunchback. Once you got to the graveyard, your body was then exposed, taken out of its coffin, and waiting for its final blessing. This manuscript was painted by an artist called the Rohan Master, and he specialized in these lugubrious, desolate images for the office of the dead. And I was very struck by this image, and I want to read you what I wrote about it. Man is here at his most desolate, Still bound in a way to earth by a body not yet decomposed, his soul is no longer of this world, but it is not yet of the next. There is a sense of being completely alone, of being abandoned by both God and his fellow man, permeates the miniatures that the Rohan master painted for the office of the dead in books of ours. The treacherous, inhospitable landscape with its rough trees, its cities seen in a distance that alludes to the dead man's separation from life, its lack even of the companionship of other dead, for the grave prepared for this corpse seems to be the only one in the cemetery, all embody in this miniature the despair with which people in the late Middle Ages anticipated their end. God's forgiving kindness shines down upon this corpse, but like the light from a distant, although powerful star, its beams appear faint and ineffectual. After the final blessing, or during the final blessing, then you were buried, either naked, as we saw in the previous miniature, or still sewn up into your shroud. Notice that the corpse is put into the ground without benefit of the coffin, that would have impeded the rotting of the flesh and would have made the process longer. People weren't buried in coffins then. We're talking about the normal people, not the, not the super rich or the, the royal. You can also see in this illustration another charnel house with the little skulls populating the open storage area that surrounded the graveyard. This was one of the last miniatures that I used in the exhibition and one that I also found very moving. A figure of death who holds a lance in his hand, the lance with which he will strike his next victim. He holds in his hand a dark round object. It's black now, but it used to be silver, silver that is since oxidized. And when originally painted, it had a sort of shiny effect. And that's a medieval mirror. And you, as the reader of this manuscript, held it open and saw yourself reflected in the mirror and therefore yourself literally in death's hands. That's the end.